You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, record it, and uh, hopefully some people out there are enjoying it. Uh, <laughs> I think you left out like the small panic attacks we have when technology doesn't work. That's part of this process. That is part of the process. <laughs> um, but, you know, crisis averted. Just had to restart GarageBand. That's all we had to do. Yeah. So. It still doesn't help. It does not help me because I'm not like technologically savvy. So I always panic and I blame mom for that. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I get it. I get it. So, yeah, but we, we get it all, uh, all rolling. Um, so, uh, this week we are on, uh, not necessarily a time crunch, but I think we, uh, we, have, we also did all of our chatting before we started. So we don't really have much to talk about. So I guess we'll just get right into it. Oh, well, okay. Thanks. Sure. All right. That wasn't a problem. You have at all. notes, right? I do have what? notes. <laughs> I do have notes. Uh, but no, we're going to do this chapter just a little differently because it, it's essentially list, or at least it opens with list. And, you know, okay, lists are important. There's a reason why specific lists are, list, I can't even talk, are included in scripture. And we need to pay attention to, to what's going on with these lists. But we don't always need every bit of information to get the point. And so I decided, you know, we're not just going to read through all these names. I could do like, you know, this thing where I broke down what each name meant and what have you, which, by the way, okay, I wasn't even planning on this, but there is like a lot of stuff out there that is claiming that certain list of names like spell out some secret encoded message. And one of them is very popular is like all the generations from Adam to to Noah. it's wrong, guys. It, it's completely wrong. I, I went through because I thought, well, hey, if that's true, that's really cool. And there are things like that in the Bible that you can definitely see. But eh, that, that just doesn't work. So, um, you know, be careful about the secret encoded stuff, Bible codes. Um, you know, God's message is clear. And, you know, I do think there's sometimes some little nuggets in there that are kind of like God winking at us, but they aren't really necessary for uh you know, they aren't necessary for theology or any kind of greater understanding of the mm-hmm. word. They're they're just they're winks, you know. So don't don't make too much of them. But um the list this this chapter opens with, and we're in chapter four, is a list of Solomon's officials. So we've got his his officers of his court, we have the important folks, and then we get kind of a list of his wealth and his achievements and you know what we're really supposed to um, be paying attention to is the fact the kingdom is expanding because we have some of these lists for David and Solomon's is more involved. So we're supposed to see the kingdom is growing. And so what I'm going to do is pick out some more interesting points. And we're going to kind of talk about those a little bit. And, um, but the, like I said, the, the big thing is paying attention to the fact the kingdom's expanding, expanding and it's expanding both in terms of geography as as expanding in the terms of being a more full-fledged nation that it it now is 
got this governmental system that requires some bureaucracy. And so you've got to have all these people in these um, offices. And then we're also supposed to see that Solomon's wisdom is vast and it's respected not just by Israelites, but people in most of the known world at this point. And so the, the two are tied together, both the expansion of the kingdom and Solomon's wisdom. And the chapter mm-hmm. begins with just a very simple statement. It says, King Solomon was king over all of Israel, not Israel and Judah. There's no division. So at this point, under Solomon, Israel is united. Um, and that's really important because when we look back through Judges and Samuel, so often you don't have all of Israel. You have Judah or Israel. And we need to remember, this is like insane. Solomon has relatively managed to capture the allegiance of all of Israel. It took David seven years to go from the time he was crowned king over Judah to king over Israel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for Solomon to be able to do this, this is telling you about his ability to unite people. And that is going to be a major function of his, of his reign. And we talked about last week with that, uh, the story of the two prostitutes and the baby that Solomon was going to divide and how that's kind of foreshadowing for what's going to happen with the kingdom, because it's going to take Solomon's wisdom to keep not just the baby intact, but to keep this baby nation intact. So the list begins by naming Azariah, son of Zadok, as priest. In verse four, though, we're going to see that Zadok and Abathar both are listed as priests. But if you remember back in chapter two, Abathar was sent in to exile. So we've got our first quote unquote problem. And what we need to remember when we're looking at lists like this, they probably weren't compiled once and done. You know, this is something that was worked on throughout Solomon's reign. We probably do have lists, the basis of this list back in Solomon's time, starting there with his court officials and recorders, which the list tells us he has. But then also there were editors who came back mm-hmm. and said, hey, you know, we need to add this or this wasn't included. Uh, you know, different points in Solomon's reigns, there's going to be different priests. There's a couple of different possibilities why Abathar is included, because we know that David told Solomon, hey, you need to get him out. And Solomon mm-hmm. did. And so, but Abathar actually had his own following, his own group of people who were loyal to him. So by still recognizing this, this is another way of, you know, kind of keeping the peace. It's, it's very politically correct to just acknowledge, you know, he still has that title. He's still a priest. Solomon did not take that role from him. And he was probably serving in whatever community he went to. The other explanation, and I thought this was kind of a, a clever solution by the rabbis, which, you know, sometimes we have to watch their clever solutions. It's that um, Zadok was the high priest in Solomon's time. There may have been times where he could not function as high priest. You know, he was sick. He was unclean for whatever reason. Remember, unclean doesn't mean sinful, uh, but he was unable to perform the functions. And so it's a possibility Abathar would come back and actually fill in for Zadok. It's speculation. But, you know, over the course of the lifetime, you kind of need someone to to cover your shift occasionally. Uh, Sure, sure. (laughs) You know, he's not not superhuman he's just a priest um now the um 
these kinds of problems have you know, really been the fodder for, oh, look, the Bible contradicts itself. But, you know, maybe not. I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily a contradiction when you understand that the list aren't supposed to just be this chronological record of everything that happened. These are just supposed to be compilations of important things. And so mm-hmm. um, the other thing we have in the list is we have scribes. And a lot of commentators, what I found them saying was that this is a suggestion that Solomon is actually learning from his father-in-law. And we, at this point, the only father-in-law that we have is Pharaoh. And we know mm-hmm. that Pharaoh's courts, you know, they, it had, he had scribes, he had recorders, he had secretaries. It, he had a very formalized system of government that had been in place for a very long time. And then we've got some really crazy names, which one of them is uh, Shisha, which is a Hebrewization uh, of the Egyptian word for scribe. So it's probably not a real name. They're probably getting the Egyptian title for the position versus having a name. And it really, mm. yeah, it really makes sense when you think about it. Because not only is Solomon, you know, married into Pharaoh's family, learning from him would have made sense because, number one, there's the purpose of the marriage was not romance. It was not love. We don't even have her name. We don't know who she is, what she thought of this, because the woman herself is not important. It's the connection she forms between Egypt and Israel. And I was thinking about this. It really seems interesting to me because it seems very common in the Bible that one of two things are going on. We're either trying to get Israel out of Egypt or we're trying to get Egypt out of Israel. It's always seems to be that back and forth between the two countries. And, you know, Egypt was considered to be a highly, um, there's no real good way to say it. it. It seemed to be a place of much occult, demonic, spiritual events and action, even above what a lot of other cultures and countries of this time were doing. Uh, It it was considered to be a very evil place, not just because they had enslaved Israel, but because there was this focus on the supernatural realm and there was the supposed interaction that went on with the unseen realm. And so whenever you have this going on, then you got to ask, what's the source of those events? And so the rabbis even taught that at the beginning of the world, God created 13 kinds of magic and Egypt had nine of them. And that, that's how powerful they were to, to interact. So whenever we're, we're talking about Egypt versus Israel, I mean, we're talking about a symbol uh, of something that is oppressive, something that has its power drawn from a dark source, uh, a power that comes from a source that is opposed to God actively opposed to God. And mm-hmm. so we, we've got to pay attention to the way it, it's, it's symbolized. But the, the thing that Egypt offered Solomon is it's very, very old. And it, it's as old as, you know, many of the other nations. But here's the thing with Egypt. It had a very structured, formalized system of government. And even when there were revolution or change within Egypt itself, the, the next regime always built off of what went before. And so they kind of had a leg up on everybody else where a lot of the other nations didn't have that continuity. This is why Egypt is one of those first nations that we become fascinated with when we begin studying history, 
because it does give us this broad expanse of history way, way back in a way that nobody else does because it's written down and it's preserved in all this archaeological finds and, you know, all the writings that we have. And so when Egypt says, hey, I can help you establish your government, I can give you a system that works, and you're coming from a place where your dad was king, but, but he was only barely king. He was mm. king over this loose confederation of tribes. He's not king over a solidified nation with structure and any kind of uh, it, the formalized government systems just aren't in place in Israel yet. And we need to remember David was was hanging on by his fingernails at times to to maintain rule of this this kingdom. I mean. It wasn't that long ago that we were in the time of the judges. Samuel was a judge. Samuel is the one who anointed David. He died mm. during David's lifetime. So whenever we have the last judge alive and the first king over Israel never really united Israel in the way that David did. And plus, we got to remember right before David died, we had Shiva's rebellion where he said, hey, let's go back to the time of the judges. Let's go back to everyone ruling in their own tent so that we don't have to deal with the king. This is the mindset of the people that David was dealing with. And so for Solomon, he's got to get this figured out and he's got to get it figured out fast and it's got to be effective. So what do you do if you're wise? You go to someone who has knowledge of the systems you're trying to implement. So mm -hmm. very practically from a just, hey, what's a good idea? What's a common sense thing to do? This is it. And you know that's, that's the problem. Because we, as my husband just walked by and the dogs are excited to see him. Anyway, the, um, we as human beings, and we do this today, how often do we do, oh, you know, yes, the speed limit says 65, but I'm really late, late to work and I don't want to, you know, be late. So I'm going mm -hmm. to speed. Um, hey, I can grab some pencils at work because that makes more sense than having to stop at the store on the way home and they're here. It's com we do common sense accommodations to our faith all the time. And we're going to see that that is Solomon's downfall. And, you know, the thing is Solomon had more on the line. So the, we need to pay attention to what happens in his life because what he did made total sense in his culture and time. Mm -hmm. And whenever you've got, you know, it's that much of a payoff or that much to lose by not doing what's wise in the world's eyes, it's all the more tempting to take that route. And so I think it's real easy for us to condemn Solomon for what he did when we're guilty of it every day. We, mm -hmm. we just, we, we do this. We don't allow faith. We don't allow God's word to tell us, Hey, what's right and wrong. And then stick to it just because God said it, and right, and 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 we just don't happen to be in charge of an entire nation, so people aren't necessarily recording all of our bad. Well, no one hears. <laughs> Most of the people in the world are not having their bad decisions recorded by someone else, um, largely because we're we're not as big a player as Solomon was on the world stage. Well, and that's the thing, it's not even necessarily bad decisions as far as depending on whose scale you're measuring by. And you know, I I think that we forget that sometimes when the Bible says don't do this, even if it's expedient, even if it's not technically breaking any law, 
but it, it violates that moral code, we need to not do that. You know, it, it's, it really is that simple. It, 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 it's not for us to figure out some kind of justification to say, oh, well, you know, it, it's not that bad or God will understand. How, how many times do I hear that one? God will understand. Yes, God understands. He understands you're a sinful person. He didn't understand you trying to somehow make it right. And, you know, and I'm not trying to cast stones here. I've often said if God would let me be a little bit more manipulative, I could get a lot more done. Uh, so, you know, I, yeah. we have to, to, to evaluate our actions according to God's word. And that's where Solomon messes up. It, he's, he's doing what's wise. This is not stupid. That's the main thing I want to point out. What Solomon's doing is not stupid. It's not foolish. It is 100% the wise thing to do by the world's economy. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to be careful not to let the world's economy dictate our actions just because it's easier. And because another benefit of Solomon actually paying attention to Egypt and emulating his father-in-law is that, I mean, that strengthens the bonds between Egypt and Israel. And you've got to remember that Egypt and, you know, is actually a source uh, or can be a source of um, protection. Protection. Um, they are like running cable in my yard right now on a little four wheeler. I think I'm getting ready to get my fiber optic. Okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Did not expect mm -hmm. that when we started recording, but the, um, the fact that Egypt has established armies and Egypt is going to be able to kind of offer a source of support. And we're going to find that this becomes a really big issue in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is telling them, don't rely on Egypt, don't rely on chariots and horses. And so it's very tempting to, to reach out and really build a strong bond with somebody who can be a good ally. So that's just, that's another thing that Solomon gets from this kind of connection. Now, for me, a couple of the names that are really interesting on the, on the list are found in verse 5. It's Azariah, son of Nathan, was one of the official, uh, officers. Before we get oh, too far into that real quick, I mean, and you also look at this as Solomon was not, uh, you know, we talked in the last chapter about Solomon not being someone who, isn't, who knows about warfare and in being in charge of armies. That's true. So this is playing to his strengths and avoiding... Mm -hmm. Uh, armed conflict and having to go out to war. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it does seem like a very wise move, especially if that's his skill set is being able to be the uh, the diplomat right. versus the general. So, I mean, that to me uh, would seem to to kind of play into what we're talking about there. Absolutely, and you know, and, and I'm not saying, and again, I think I've said this, but you know, we're not saying what Solomon did was right. But there's often right. a difference between what's right and what's uh, wise. Those two things don't always add up. And so, you know, a lot of times loving kindness requires that we be foolish. It requires that we're sacrificial or do something that, you know, in the moment is very detrimental to ourselves. And yeah, well, oh, and it's OK. So the, the book of Proverbs, I was once <laughs> uh, tasked with with writing a. I can't remember what it was, but it was basically like a series outline for uh, a study on the book of Proverbs. It was like six weeks. And I'm like, that's really not enough time, um, right? but we'll do what we can here. And one of the things, if you look at the descriptions of ways of, of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, mm -hmm. they do very similar things. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Both of them stand on the street corner and call to people. Mm-hmm. Now they call people two different things. So sometimes wisdom and folly, like you're saying, can look very similar. And that's, that's one of the things that a lot of uh, commentators I've seen have not picked up on. Mm-hmm. They, they want to just, they, they want to make it, I don't know, it's like, it's this weird thing where, yes, like wisdom, being wise, takes more discipline, mm-hmm. takes more time oftentimes. But Proverbs says that wisdom stands and calls. Mm-hmm. So it's there. It's available if we are open, open our eyes and listen. It's not like we have to go out and, and seek some sort of secret source of wisdom. It's there, and the Bible says it's there for the taking. Right. I mean, it's, it's just frustrating to me how much we want to try to make it seem. And I guess a lot of that comes from the, you know, uh, people wanting to overplay the idea of total depravity that, you know, people are just going to seek foolishness. And, 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 and to a degree, a lot of people do. But I think that also leads back to the we are without excuse part of Paul's letter later on, uh, if you want to tie everything all together. <laughs> well, and, and the, I think the other thing, too, is we like things we can control. We, mm-hmm. we really like things that there's an immediate payoff on. This is why substances are addictive. There's an immediate payoff. And the faster the payoff, the more addictive it is. And mm. so if we, you know, it's kind of be uh, trying to figure, explain this. So, you know, if the world's idea of wisdom is actually something that goes against God's law, so often there's not a payoff for the believer to walk in faith. And so that's where the, the, um, the problem is for us is there's, because there's not an obvious payoff, right, should we say? Right. Well, and it may take it may take a while for that payoff to get there. Um, we may never actually in this lifetime see any kind of benefit, and so are we going to be willing to walk by faith to say that yes, that in honoring God by living according to His rules and His standards, now it doesn't matter if there's a payoff. The point is I did the right thing. I did what God Mm -hmm. wanted me to do because I love him. And so, you know, I I see so often where, um, you know, a lot of these uh, stories and TV shows that deal with supernatural events or what have you, uh, they they always amuse me because number one, they're a theological train wreck. But number two, uh, what they're saying is more than anything is there's a way for them to get what they need while avoiding God's ways. I mean, mm-hmm. every one of them, this is what it boils down to. I can deal with this ghost. I can deal with this demon. I can deal with whatever, but I do it by avoiding God's ways. And I'm going to, you know, put salt out or burn a candle or you know, whatever they're going to do. And then they, it's like, guys, you know, if you were just walking with God, he would deal with this for you. And so, and so this is basically Solomon avoiding God's ways. And maybe he's aware of what he's doing. Maybe he's not. We don't know because there is some debate on how much Torah was available to Solomon. What did he know? Because, you know, we know that Deuteronomy was uh, lost for a period of time. We're going to get to that story later in the book of Kings. But you know, there had to be some level of knowledge within what Solomon was doing, because even if just the book of Deuteronomy was gone, we have other um, other sources of warning. 
particularly the story of Exodus, which the nation would have been celebrating by this point. They would have been remembered every year in Passover. And we understand, they would have understood that their history was firmly rooted in the, the things that Exodus did to, or Exodus, sorry, Egypt did in order to hurt Israel as a nation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you know, these are the things that I, I always, I enjoy talking about. I enjoy looking at it going, how do we pull this out of some way to um, teach us something? So it's not just a story. What, what, what becomes the application? And matter of fact, um, I can get lost in the application. But verse five, Azariah, son of Nathan, was one of the officers. Zabed, the son of Nathan, was priest and the king's friends. Now, I, I said this is, these are the names that are really interesting to me because we've talked about the fact that in the past, Nathan and Bathsheba seem to have some kind of relationship or an alliance, at least a mutual respect that went mm-hmm. beyond just kind of like, you know, passing in the hallways. Um, you know, this is probably born of the fact that Nathan was moved on Bathsheba's behalf. Uh, he confronted David, stood up for her, made sure she wasn't killed as being mm-hmm. unfaithful to her husband. He, Nathan literally saved her life. But Nathan also experienced God's heart for Bathsheba. And that's part of the experience as a prophet. And whenever people have those kinds of experiences, there is that strong bond and this, this type of investment within the person that occurs. And then we've got evidences of this going further because we know that one of Solomon's brother, uh, Bathsheba's sons, was named Nathan. So she honored the prophet by naming a child after him. Then um, Nathan uh, worked to make sure that Bathsheba and Solomon weren't killed when Adonia tried to take the throne. And you know, that was part of the plan. That's part of his reasoning behind going to David and saying, hey, we, we need to make sure Bathsheba actually going to Bathsheba and saying we need to make sure Solomon's the one on the throne, not Adonia. And so now we see that two of Nathan's sons are high ranking officials in Solomon's courts. So. Nathan's sons and David and Bathsheba's sons knew each other that, you know, mm-hmm. and it would be interesting to know it, there's a story ready to be written, you know, some kind of speculative fiction work, you know, did they grow up playing together Were you know, were they really good friends? Were they making mud pies together? What, you, what happened with these kids that they would decide to do this because, um, you know, not only is um, Nathan's sons uh, officers were specifically told that one of Nathan's sons is Solomon's friend. And so I, I really, I, I love that. And, you know, we know that in second Samuel 20, 26, uh, Ira, the, uh, Ira, the Jerite, he's named as having the same position as priest and uh, friend. And so we've kind of got a little bit of, um, contradiction because a priest isn't someone from any other tribe than the tribe of Levite. So, so how do we do, you know, how does this make sense with these men who are occupying this position, not being Levites, being a priest? I think the easiest solution is that this guy is performing more as a chaplain, uh, a confessor, a spiritual guidance within the, um, within the courts of David. Uh, or and Solomon both, 
And so, um, you know, it's somebody more intimate than just somebody who's constantly performing these spiritual exercises that going on in the temple. And I am sorry about the background noise today, guys. Evidently, everybody decided to show up at my house the minute we started to record. So, so far, I haven't really noticed much on this end. I'll see when I get uh, your audio, what okay. needs to be cleaned up. Yeah, because it sounds really loud over here. So, okay. <laughs> but verse six uh, gives us the name of the official in charge of forced labor. David also had an officer in charge of forced labor. But the, the thing is, in, in David's reign, it seems to be very limited. Solomon, of course, he's going to expand this. This is going to be a much more necessary uh, situation uh, position because Solomon's going to do a whole lot more building than David ever did. Now, another interesting name in this list is Hur, as in Ben-Hur. Uh, this is not Ben-Hur as in the movie or book. It, the, the timelines don't work. So this is that character is not based off this guy. They just happen to share a name. Now, um, the word her in Hebrew means linen, and it could possibly, but not definitely, actually be linked back to another Egyptian name that's based on Horus, the, the Egyptian god Horus. So that would be kind of an interesting thing if anyone could ever flesh it out. In the commentaries that I was reading, there's still debate. But um, the, the name then whatever is found with these officials. Um, so one of the things to, to notice about the name, when we're, we look at a name that says Ben whatever, that's son of, and you're reading mm. the Hebrew. Now, if you see Bar, like in Barabbas or Bartholomew, that's son of, but you're reading an Aramaic name. So there's a real quick tip off where you can see the differences in the language, even if you haven't studied it. Now, He's part of this list of 12 officials, and these 12 officials were set over various providences, and they are um, all responsible for providing food one month out of the year for the palace. And the providences seem to be divided up, not according to tribe, but according to geographic regions, which would have been important because each geographic region would have had a slightly different growing season. And this would allow for the most effective use of the crops to make sure that the palace is getting what's coming out of the fields when there's the most abundance for the people and not taking food away from them during the leaner seasons. Uh, the list also has two very interesting names, and that's uh, Tafta and Basmoth. And these are Solomon's daughters. So we've got two of Solomon's daughters named. And what's interesting about their names is these are very old forms when you have the feminine name that ends with that th sound the th sound we're looking at a very old form so what's exciting about that is these names would have been on the um on the list on the um list very early they would have been included probably from the very first time the list was written and because of this, it's, it's really, um, it, it tells us that these women were significant and probably more significant than just being Solomon's daughters. 
And that's what I love about this. This these women had a place of importance because how many of Solomon's wives are named? We really we have Solomon's mother, we have two of his daughters. I don't think we have any names of Solomon's wives. I know Pharaoh's daughters uh, never never named. So that tells you where the, the importance and the significance of women were found with Solomon. It wasn't the wives. It was with the women um, otherwise. So um, it also tells us that the men they married were pretty important too, or else they wouldn't have been allowed to uh, marry the king's daughters. Now. The fact that this list is supposed to tell us so much about Solomon's officials isn't because the officials themselves are all that important. The officials themselves tell us how important Solomon is. You don't have a royal court this size unless you have a pretty substantial governmental system that needs supporting. And so, um, catch up on my list here. Uh, we have this these people who are important in their own right, this is kind of with a circular reasoning kind of things, people who are important in their own right, but they're, because they are important serving Solomon, this means Solomon has to be more important than they are. So it's this kind of this thing where the more important, the, the bigger status of a higher class, whatever your, your servants are, then that's that much more of an elevation for you as king. And so there's a, the, interesting thought there that we could play with, but we want uh, about, you know, how, how high ranking are God's servants? So we could play with that idea for a while. That should be interesting mm -hmm. because um, I know some folks who ascribe to total depravity who would completely freak out with the implications of that. But anyway, uh, almost all of them are named as the son, like I was saying, and there's only one exception, exception, and that's in verse 6, and, and that's Ahishar. And um, DeVries actually speculates that this might suggest that this guy was not from an important family. I mean, who cares who his dad is if his dad's a slave or a servant? So he may have been someone who kind of rose through the ranks by his own merits, which mm -hmm. would be a really interesting thought, too. But he you know, DeVries is very uh, clear that this is speculation and we have no way of proving that. But um, it, he does interest me. I'd like to know his backstory uh, anymore. So we move from, you know, this list of officials to a quick inventory of Israel's state, uh, of state of being. And this starts in verse 20. It says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So we get this reference back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 that his children would be as numerous as the sands of the sea. And we also have this um, promise, this echo of the promise to Moses in Exodus 3.17 that the land is abundant beyond all expectations and that the enemies who inhabited the land would be driven out. So we're seeing God's promises being fulfilled within Solomon's reign. And now, if you're reading in the Hebrew Bible, this is a good time to note that's the end of chapter four, and you move into chapter five. Uh, if you're reading in the English, we keep going with verse 21. It says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt and brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So um, 
also, this is fulfilling God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, 18 and 19. It says, to your offspring, I give the land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates and the land of, and then the list goes on with a bunch of really hard names, which I'm not going to read, but it's also echoed again in Exodus 3. So um, not all the land listed is Israel proper. And I think we need to remember this. Uh, it is controlled by Israel, but it's not necessarily the land of Israel. And the people who lived in these property, in these uh, providences outside of Israel proper, they maintained their place by paying tribute to Solomon. And so they were bringing him money. They were bringing him food. They were bringing him a number of items that would, he would have needed to make his palace run smoothly. And we're, and we're told about some of the massive amounts of food uh, that are consumed by his pal a palace guest, um, the servants. And we're so told that the, the surrounding companies kept peace with Israel. And because of this, in verse 25, we're told, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and all the days Solomon. So everyone has what they need. There's no want. Uh, they're content with what they have at this time because there's more than enough. They can, they can send these great tributes to Solomon because they have excess. And um, that's, that's what the writer really wants you to see. I mean, this is prosperity like none of us have ever known. It's prosperity that the world it, as a whole has rarely known. And it's happening under Solomon because he is so wise. Yet, even while we have these descriptions that sound all rosy and beautiful, we shouldn't rest too easily because the next verse is a warning for anyone who knows their Torah. This is verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, this small detail is just kind of slipped into this list that just kind of reads straight through. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's got horses. These wildly massive numbers of horses and horsemen. But it's put in there like it's not a big deal. But I think the writer is seeing, you know, how well do you know God's law? How well do you know your Bible? Because in Deuteronomy 7.16, this is the commands concerning the king. What's going to happen once Israel does have a king when they get to Canaan? It says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And so we have another link back to Egypt and the influence Egypt is having on Israel through Solomon. Now, at this time, Egypt would have been the prime place to get horses. Uh, they'd been in Egypt about 600 years before Solomon uh, began to rule. Uh, they had developed the art of using horses for pulling their chariots. Uh, that was actually farther ahead than a lot of other tribes and lands that were using uh, horses. Horses in Egypt were a status symbol. Only the extremely, extremely wealthy and those of high status owned them. They were never used as agricultural animals. They weren't used to pull plows or carts or anything like that. They were used almost exclusively for pulling a chariot and for hunting. Uh, mm -hmm. Rarely were they ridden astride. No, so no horseback riding in Egypt. And the reason for this is, you know, we're looking at pretty small horses. Um, they are... About 13.2 hands, so about 52 inches tall. That's what, what, 
a little over four, four and a half feet, about around that. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, four, that's going to be four feet, four inches. That's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty short horse. That's almost a pony. It, well, it is. Anything under 15 hands is a pony automatically. So, yeah, it's it's what we would be yeah, consider a pony, but this was a standard size horse at that point in time. Now, there were some uh, improvements because, I mean, we're at, at this point, uh, the Phoenicians, um, specifically the Phoenicians had a tire, and, and that's going to be kind of an interesting tie-in, too, when we get to the next chapter, were bringing the Iberian or the Spanish horses over to Egypt at this point. And this is when we begin to kind of start seeing this enlargement of horses as a whole. Uh, this also would have been a good time to have horses, too, because this is when the, the Assyrians would have been developing the, bri the bit and the bridle. So now riding them astride would be more feasible and a lot mm -hmm. safer. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of, I guess you could say this is Solomon adopting the latest technology to advance his kingdom. And so, you know, we're we're kind of having the same debate right now. I mean, I don't want to put it on the spiritual level. I, I uh, there's people who might want to take it there, and that's not what I'm trying to do. But it might be a good analogy to say, you know, as far as like electric cars, uh, do do you adopt the latest technology? Is this wise? Is this good? Uh, Solomon said, "Hey, this is this is wise for my kingdom to have all of these horses and chariots, and you know, mm -hmm. so forty thousand horses." or that would have been 20,000 chariots that they could have pulled at any given time. And essentially a chariot at this point in time, that's the equivalent of a tank. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, this isn't like something that, oh, it's a plaything. This is a, a strong military statement to the rest of the world, which is interesting because why God gave him peace all around. Solomon doesn't need horses. He doesn't need chariots because God gave him peace all around. And so when Solomon is, is gathering these horses, while yes, it's a great political military statement to say, hey, my nation is secure, don't attack me. It's kind of belying the fact that God is the one who's the source of all of this peace. And so there's some conflict between his theology and his actions. And also he's kind of, you know, saying, this is how wealthy I am. This is how mm -hmm. prosperous I am. It, it's a pride move. And we're going to see Solomon. I, we all know this. He's a man of excess. So even though, you know, he, he's got, you know, these, these 40,000 stalls for horses, he's also the guy who took a thousand whole burnt offerings to uh, Gibeon. I, mm -hmm. He doesn't do anything in half measures. And this is probably why when we get to Ecclesiastes, where he starts talking about, hey, balance and moderation is actually a really good thing. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so he, he's been, he's over the top. And we're going to talk about how that plays into even building the temple. But anyway, back to this chapter, verse 27. And those officers were still talking about those providences um, where they are bringing stuff in. They supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing lacking. So we're reminded that Solomon not only has to provide for his palace and for his palace staff, which would have been, you know, probably hundreds of people, if not thousands. Uh, all the guests who showed up had to be fed. 
all of the entourage royal, you know, officials that came with them had to be fed. And so this is a really big drain on the system and on the people and taxes. Now, so we, we got the people, they're being taken care of. We're like, well, of course, you know, if you've got a diplomat showing up to the White House, you're going to feed them and you're going to feed them the best food possible. We, we get that. But then verse 28 says, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the palace where it was required, each according to his duty. And so the writer is reminding us these horses are a burden to the people, that they are actually forced, they have a duty to provide for the king's horses. And the, the foreshadowing that's going on here is very subtle, but I think it's very effective. Israel's profit, uh, prosperous, people are well fed, there's enough excess to feed the king and all his guests, and the horses also get taken care of. And it's a requirement. Why? Because Solomon is so excessive in everything he does. And so, like I said, hold new spin on Ecclesiastes in how you read it when you stop and think of this man who wrote the book being a man of excess. So verse 29, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breadth of his mind, like the sea of the sand, like the sand on the seashore. Sorry, <laughs> sea on the sand shore, sand on the seashore. <laughs> So, in other words, he has the capacity to rule that matches the people. The people are like sand on the seashore. Solomon has wisdom like uh, sand on the seashore. He has a breadth of mind, so it's an expansive knowledge. He's not somebody who's just got a little niche uh, understanding of what's going on. He, he, he gets it all. Mm -hmm. So, verse 30. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people to the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. So there are extensive wisdom traditions in Egypt, in Ugaritic, uh, in Canaanite, Mesopotamian um, literature that date, you know, as, as far back as a lot of the writing begins, we've got wisdom traditions because these are things people wanted to preserve. If, if they wanted to hang on to that wisdom. So we, we do have documents and they follow many of the same forms and the outlines that we find within the Hebrew wisdom literature. Uh, this is very common in these ancient worlds, especially I mean, when you think about, you know, an average lifespan being, you know, 40 years or, you know, even if you wanted to get some higher numbers there. Being able to hang on to this wisdom from generation to generation would have been very important. It would have been almost necessary for their survival. And almost all ancient people considered wisdom to be something bestowed by the God. It's a gift. It's not something you're born with. It's not something you can acquire on your own. It's something the gods have to give you. And so when Solomon is wise beyond all of these other countries, all the people of the East and all of Egypt, what we're saying isn't just that Solomon is wise, but that Solomon's God is bigger and greater than all the other gods who've given wisdom to their kings and their important men. So this is a theological statement. It's not just a statement about Solomon himself. And mm. an ancient reader would have read it that way. And so we need to understand, oh, yeah, okay, so yeah, God gave Solomon wisdom. No, Ra gave wisdom. Horus gave wisdom. I, and there's probably a specific God whose name I'm forgetting that gave wisdom to the Egyptians. Solomon's God gave greater wisdom. 
And so many times when the Bible refers to other countries and it refers to other gods, what they're really talking about and really trying to show you is that the God of Israel surpasses anything any other nation um, knows. But mm-hmm. then, the, then the writer, he takes us from, you know, this kind of broad perspective of the whole known world recognizing Solomon's great wisdom. And he focuses this right back to Israel because, I mean, if the God of Israel is, is wise, then, you know, wisdom within Israel as a whole should be greater. So what difference does it make if these other gods, I mean, other kings and wise men are wise? We really need to focus on is Solomon wiser than other Israelites? And that's exactly what he gives us because if Solomon's not wiser than other Israelites, big whoop. It says, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Hikal, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So these names, Ethan, Heman, Hikal, uh, Darda, they're, they're listed together again in First um, Chronicles 2.6. Now, Darda has a different um, spelling. I think it's Threk, uh, as the sons of Zerah. Now, Zerah was a son of Judah and Tamar. And um, we're going to, that's what clarifies in Chronicles. And we also know that Ethan the Ezraite is credited with composing Psalm 89, and his brother Heman is credited with composing Psalm 88. And they're part of the temple choristers. They, they sing in the temple. They, they compose these songs and they sing. So we know this temple is not built until Solomon is in charge. So the timeline doesn't work out for Heman and Ethan to be actual sons of Judah and Tamar, because Judah and Tamar, we studied them, they're way back in Genesis. Judah's one of the sons of Jacob, whose grandfather was Abraham. And we got all of this stuff that happens in between, you know, like the whole, you know, time in Egypt. And then we've got the the, uh, wilderness journeys. And then we got the period of the judges. So Mm. we need a few more generations in there. So here's one of the things that we we often hear from critics. Well, the timelines don't work. Okay, the timelines don't work in the genealogies only if you don't understand the purpose and function of the genealogies. So genealogies are a specially curated list designed to paint a picture of the family's prestige and status. So there's a couple of different ways that genealogies do this. But in this case, what we're seeing is it's kind of telescoping in a way where we are given the founder of the tribe, which is Judah, and his wife, Tamar. And then we're given the living members of the family. We aren't given everybody in between. It's taken as a given that the reader is smart enough to know that there had to be some more people in there to get from Judah and Tamar to Ethan and Heman. And so, you know, whenever you're given this this idea, you know, we do have Sarah in there. Uh, when you're given these names, you're sp- being given names that you recognize. You're being given names that automatically communicate. This is where this person belongs within our, our social status and structure. And these two guys come from Tamar. They come from Judah. 
Tamar was considered to be one of the wisest women in the Old Testament because she was able to get back the, the blessing that Judah tried to keep from her. And so mm-hmm. the fact that these guys descend from a tradition of wisdom, they, they aren't just, oh, they happen to be wise. No, they, they come from a family that has been wise since its foundation. And so this is why we can't just go, well, here's the timetable when we go through genealogies. It, it's not, it, it doesn't work that way. We also need to know that in ancient cre- uh, cultures, the creation of songs or psalms, uh, proverbs and visual arts are all the product and the ability to be wise. They're undeniable proof that you are wise. Mm-hmm. So by virtue of the fact they compose psalms worthy of being included in the book of psalms and you know, remembered to this day, still sung today, uh, this is how wise they are. So when we talk about Ethan and Heman in particular, we have evidence that these guys, even though the Bible doesn't tell us, you know, any other place about their wisdom, it, the writers don't need to because the evidence is in their creation. Mm-hmm. So uh, verse 32, he also spoke 3000 Proverbs and his songs were 1005. Uh, so I think that we know that Solomon is credited with writing Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Psalms. And, um, you know, if this is correct, then aside from Moses, he wrote, he's the second most prolific writer in the Old Testament. And so that's interesting that Solomon's the one who has written more books of the Bible than anyone other than Moses. So, um, and that's only if you believe that Moses wrote all five books of the Torah, which there's some debate there. So, um, verse 33, he spoke of trees from cedar that, are, that is in Lebanon to hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and reptiles and of fish. So this is probably the oldest part of this chapter. Um, he was so wise and it was just so accepted that people were actually singing songs about his wisdom. And that verse is part of one of those songs that the writer has incorporated. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, the, I'm debating on how far we, we go with this, because if you just read this verse in kind of a low key way, this is, he's talking about these things. He's talking about these plants. He's talking about these animals. Uh, he has the ability to look at them, see how they function and work and be able to derive, you know, the most um, use from them. And that's where most commentators land on this verse. And, and that's that first level uh, of interpretation. Now, the next level uh, that we find kind of throughout history is that like with the plants, Solomon could look at the plants and he understood what the medicinal values were from the plants. So he was actually a great physician and he wrote uh, medical books and herbal books that told you how to use these plants in order to cure things. Mm. Maybe um, we aren't told specifically they did or didn't. But then the next level up of interpretation is that he was able to take his knowledge of these plants and these herbs, and he was able to control the demons 
that cause disease and sickness. And so he used these to perform exorcism. And, um, man, okay. Researching Solomon has been one of the absolute hardest <laughs> things I have done. Um, because of verses like this and because of his wisdom and the fact that wisdom is so critical within the, any kind of world system where supernatural knowledge and the ability to interact with the supernatural is valued. And, and I'm saying any kind, whether we're talking Christianity, Judaism, witchcraft, paganism, any of that stuff, the new age, Solomon becomes a key fig figure for these people. And so if you go online and you look up Solomon, you have to vet your sources hard. Um, I, I was telling you, I turned on uh, YouTube. I was working in the kitchen and I was like just randomly going through some, some YouTube videos, kind of seeing what all was out there. And I, this guy starts talking about the, the radioactive worm that Solomon found and how his... Um, throne was nuclear powered and i'm mean, like whoa wait a minute back up uh that uh, you know it, so there's this sort of thing out there there are all sorts of books and some of them are old some of them date back to second uh temple literature most of them date probably medieval times middle ages uh and then there's some newer like within the past 10 years written books that all proclaim to tell you how to harness Solomon's wisdom through seals, signets, um, through various rituals. Uh, guys, that's witchcraft, okay? Let, mm -hmm. Let's just be very clear. That's witchcraft. Don't mess with it. I don't care how old a book claims to be or how old the sources that they're drawing from, they, they, or, you know, they claim to be you know, having some special access to some sort of um, ancient wisdom, it's not necessary. So kings to Solomon, keys to Solomon, uh, the, it, the ring of Solomon, all of these things, you don't need it. The seal of Solomon, don't need it. This is not part of our biblical knowledge. This is something where someone is taking something like this verse and said, see here it's in the Bible and they're getting Christians to actually consider the idea that rather than having faith in God, relying on God's guidance, you know, praying to God in times of need, especially when dealing with the supernatural, that you should actually be more like Solomon and try to come up with this formula, aka spell, to to deal with your issues. Hmm. That's not what you do. Jesus didn't perform a ritual. He didn't cast a spell. He simply commanded demons to be gone. Okay, that's all we need to know. Jesus took care of that for us. So no salt circles, no chicken wing under the light of the moon. You, you, these are not necessary. This is going into witchcraft. And it's actually saying you don't trust God to be true to his word, to deal with this sort of thing. So studying Solomon can be highly, highly dangerous. <laughs> so I, I just, and I want people to, to be aware that your sources Look for good, solid publications. Don't go with independently published books on this. Don't go with somebody who's just got a YouTube channel. Any idiot can have a YouTube channel. We're proof of that. Um, anyone can have a <laughs> podcast. You, 
you need to be looking long and hard at what information you're gathering and where you're gathering it from. And so, um, you know, there's a ton of, of stories out there and that most of them are not, are not good. And so what we want to do whenever we look at Solomon is we want to go back to what does the Bible actually say? And we need to be pay attention to people who are stretching what the Bible says in order to, to vindicate what they're attempting to say about Solomon. So, um, the last half of this verse, it says that Solomon spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. The conservative reading, once again, is that he's speaking about these things, that he understands their life cycles, that he, he understands their function within nature. A more elaborate reading would say that he could actually communicate with these animals, that he understood their speech. Um, you know, you got to decide how far are you willing to take it? How, how far do, do you think this can be interpreted and pushed? Um, and so there's a number of crazy stories out there that Solomon had a giant eagle that he could ride on and it would take him across the Mediterranean in a day um, that he was able to speak to this worm and he was able to speak to this wild rooster. We'll talk about that story later. Um, but what this does tell us, and we'll wrap up with this, is Solomon, even though we only have, and I say only, uh, we've got quite a bit of information about him, but there's still so many holes within his story. Solomon has always ignited the imagination of people. There's something about his wisdom that captured the attention of everyone who's even brushed up against his story. I mean, as a kid, this is one of my favorite stories, the idea of being able to talk to God, being able to ask God for wisdom. How awesome was that? The idea of being able to, you know, at that point, thinking about speaking to animals, that how cool would that be? Um, the, these things um, really open the doors to people's minds of imagination of what could be. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't think it's a horrible thing to imagine what does it mean to flow so, so in unison with God that the supernatural is just part of your day to day, that the, these great insights are just part of who you are. Uh, I think that is something to aspire to, but the, the temptation that we have is how do we force it? How do we manipulate circumstances to make it happen right now in our lives? And that's what so much of this literature on Solomon actually offers us. It's not a biblical insight. It's how do we coerce God into giving us this gift that he offered Solomon. Solomon didn't force God to give it to him. Right. God gave it of his own free will. So even if it was this completely outrageous ability to, to listen to the, the leaves rustle and understand what the trees are hearing, which how cool would that be? Um, you know, if, if that's what he had, it wasn't because he did a ritual. Right. <laughs> and so, um, Excuse me. So we go ahead, take over, say something smart. No, I mean, uh, no, that, that, that's a good, that's a good way to, to look at this because there is, as you said, there's a whole bunch of information out there and it's all conflicting and, and so much of it ties into folklore and fairy tales. And it, it's, it really is a weird, uh, there's a lot of weird takes on it. And, and so, we'll did, bring up some of them as we go through. Because um, you, 
you just kind of need to be aware these stories are out there and kind of where the basis of them are. But, <clears throat> sorry, the, the chapter ends. Where's well, and, and some of, well, well, before we do that, some of the things that, that we do bring up, like the, that are some of the weirder takes, a lot of times we bring those up so that you'll know, like people listening, you'll know not to be surprised by them. Right. And a little bit of how to debunk those things, because that's one of the things that, I do find it interesting. I mean, of course, you know, everyone wants to talk about, oh, bank tellers spend lots of time studying the real bills so that they know what the fake one looks like. Well, they, yeah, there is that. And not to say that we necessarily need to study these other stories in depth, but we should at least hit the headlines on them and be like, be aware. here's why it's not true. Um, because there is quite a bit out there uh, that, that tries to, uh, to, to rock. There's a lot of it like, kind of like shock headlines to try to rock people's faith on stuff like that. Well, and that's it. it. It's all about trying to to rock people's faith and shake people's faith in the Bible and God's, uh, you know, God's fidelity and, and God's integrity and that maybe he's keeping something back and there's a secret book and this esoteric knowledge. And God says, I tell you plainly, it, you know, he, he says it. So, um, well, a book titled Everything That uh, the Good People in the World Have Told You Is True really wouldn't sell as well. Right. <laughs> so, but I, I think one of the things that we, we get, gather from Solomon is, number one, most of us have settled for a very shallow, very uh, simplistic relationship with God, and we don't have to. And, but number two, that, God is willing and God is able and he wants to offer us this deeper relationship, but we've got to walk in submission to him. And so where did Solomon get this grand offer from God? When he did the right thing, when he was doing what he was supposed to do as king, when he was over the top lavish in his love for the Lord. And when does he lose everything? When his heart's turned. And so we need to remember that because whenever our source of power and our source of security comes from our own wisdom, there's issue. But yeah. anyway, so the, the chapter ends, verse 34. And the people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard from his wisdom. So everyone from the time Solomon was alive until today has been captured by this idea of what if. And mm -hmm. so, because we do, I mean, even people who don't recognize our God recognize Solomon's gift, uh, wisdom as a divine gift. So I'm losing yeah, my voice. Well, it, no, I, yeah, I, I understand. Yeah. But it, that, that's the, uh, that's the thing is a lot of people don't. And that's, that's why it bothers me. This idea that, that, People can't naturally understand and see and be attracted to things that are good. When you have evidence like this of Solomon and people being attracted to the things he was able to do and the, the wisdom that he had, I mean, it, oh, yeah. it, there, there's so much contradiction to this idea that people don't recognize and want to at least try to pursue what's good. Now, has the enemy fooled us in a lot of ways? Yeah. Absolutely. Are there lots of things, again— Sometimes wisdom and folly look very similar, but it really, it, you have to 
spend a little more time, camp with camp with things, just be patient and and really work to discern those things. But did you have anything else you were going to add or that? You, you know, every time Solomon messed up and made some kind of mistake, it was because he wasn't doing what God told him to do. And so if we want to be wiser than Solomon, study your Bible. Know what God says and do what he tells you to. And so that's more important than any kind of magical ability somebody might get from being wise. Mm-hmm. So we just have to have faith that God is true to his word. God's character does not change. God loves us. He wants to do good things for us. And we have to understand that when he does do good things, it may not look like what we want. Mm-hmm. And it may look totally counter. And so while I may pray to be able to talk to the animals, because like I said, how cool. Um, God may decide that's not the gift I need. Maybe I need to know how to talk to you know my fellow human beings better. Um, which, you right. know, that's let's start there. And so um that's pretty much where where I am. And that that concludes our chapter four. I really didn't think we were gonna get through a whole episode, but we chased a lot of rabbits today. So um and we'll get into chapter five next week and back to the story. And I know everybody's ready to hear what we have to say on King Hiram, King of Tyre, because of course. Yeah. Then we get to the Freemason stuff and we're I'm not gonna go hugely deep. Maybe we can talk to Doug at some point. I know he's done a lot of uh Doug Overmeyer. He's done a lot of research on that. Uh that I just I'm not going to do. I mean, I'm just going right, to be honest. Right. I'm not going to do it. Uh, so is there a conspiracy to take over the world? Absolutely. Is it performed and carried out by people? Probably not because people are stupid. So we're going to be dealing with higher level uh, you know, forces of evil. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's been happening yeah. since the dawn of time. God's not scared. We don't yeah, have, I have to have some scared. stuff to say on that. Remind <laughs> me when we get in the, the conspiracy. Remind me to hit up the conspiracy thing on another episode because we're running kind of late. Okay. So yeah. anyway, that being said, um, everyone, thanks for joining us and uh, be with us next time. And in the meantime, uh, hit us up on RavenCreeksc.com. That's the website, RavenCreeksc on the social media. Be part of the conversation and uh, have a good week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.